Chapter 10 Dickon The sun shone down for nearly a week on the secret garden. The secret garden was what Mary called it when she was thinking of it. She liked the name, and she liked still more the feeling that when its beautiful old walls shut her in, no one knew where she was. It seemed almost like being shut out of the world in some fairy place. The few books she had read and liked had been fairy tale stories, and she had read of secret gardens in some of the stories. Sometimes people went to sleep in them for a hundred years, which she thought must be rather stupid. She had no intention of going to sleep, and in fact she was becoming wider awake every day which passed at Misselthwaite. She was beginning to like to be out of doors and she no longer hated the wind, but enjoyed it. The bulbs in the secret garden must have been much astonished. Such nice, clearer places were made around them that they had all the breathing space they wanted. And really, if Mistress Mary had known it, they began to cheer up under the dark earth and work tremendously. The sun could get at them and warm them, and when the rain came down it could reach them at once so they began to feel very much alive. Mary was an odd, determined little person, and now she had something interesting to be determined about. She was very much absorbed indeed. She worked and dug and pulled up weeds steadily, only becoming more pleased with her work every hour instead of tiring of it. It seemed to her like a fascinating sort of play. She found many more of the sprouting pale green points than she had ever hoped to find. They seemed to be starting up everywhere, and each day she was sure she found tiny new ones. Some so tiny that they barely peeped above the earth. There were so many that she remembered what Martha had said about the snowdrops and the thousands, and about bulbs spreading and making new ones. These had been left to themselves for ten years, and perhaps they had spread like the snowdrops into thousands. She wondered how long it would be before they showed that they were flowers. Sometimes she would stop digging to look at the garden and try to imagine what it would be like when it was covered with thousands of lovely things in bloom. During the week of sunshine, she became more intimate with Ben Weatherstaff. She surprised him several times by seeming to start up beside him as if she sprang out of the earth. The truth was that she was afraid that he would pick up his tools and go away if he saw her coming, so she always walked towards him as silently as possible. In fact, he did not object to her as strongly as he had at first. Perhaps he was secretly rather flattered by her evident desire for his elderly company. Then also she was more civil than she had been. He did not know that when she first saw him she spoke to him as she would have spoken to a native, and had not known that a cross, sturdy old Yorkshire man was not accustomed to salam to his masters and be merely commanded by them to do things. 
Thou art like the robin, he said to her one morning, when he lifted his head and saw her standing by him. I never knows when I shall see thee, or which side thou'll come from. He's friends with me now, said Mary. That's like him, snapped Ben Weatherstaff, making up to the woman folk just for vanity and flightiness. There's nothing he wouldn't do for the sake of showing off and flirting his tail feathers. He's as full of pride as an egg's full of meat. He very seldom talked much, and sometimes did not even answer Mary's questions except by a grunt. But this morning he said more than usual. He stood up and rested one hobnailed boot on top of his spade while he looked her over. How long has that been here? he jerked out. I think it's about a month, she answered. Thou's beginning to do Musselthwaite credit, he said. Thou's a bit fatter than thou was, and thou's not quite so yellow. Thou looked like a young plucked crow when thou first came into this garden. Thinks I to myself, I never set eyes on an uglier, sour-faced young'un. Mary was not vain, as she had never thought much of her looks. She was not greatly disturbed. I know I'm fatter, she said. My stockings are getting tighter. They used to make wrinkles. There's the robin, Ben Weatherstaff. There, indeed, was the robin. And she thought he looked nicer than ever. His red waistcoat was as glossy as satin, and he flirted his wings and tail, and tilted his head, and hopped about with all sorts of lively graces. He seemed determined to make Ben Weatherstaff admire him. But Ben was sarcastic. Aye, there thou art, he said. Thou can put up with me for a bit sometimes when thou's got no one better. Thou's been redding up thy waistcoat and polishing thy feathers this two weeks. I know what thou's up to. Thou's caught in some bold young madam somewhere, telling thy lies to her about being the finest cock robin and misslethwaite, and ready to fight all the rest of them. Oh, look at him, exclaimed Mary. The robin was evidently in a fascinating, bold mood. He hopped closer and closer, and looked at Ben Weatherstaff more and more engagingly. He flew onto the nearest currant bush and tilted his head and sang a little song right in front of him. Thou thinks thou'll get over me by doing that, said Ben, wrinkling his face up in such a way that Mary felt sure he was trying not to look pleased. Thou thinks no one can stand out against thee. That's what thou thinks. The robin spread his wings. Mary could scarcely believe her eyes. He flew right up to the handle of Ben Weatherstaff's spade and alighted on top of it. Then the old man's face wrinkled itself slowly into a new expression. He stood still as if he were afraid to breathe, as if he would not have stirred for the whole world lest his robin should start away. He spoke in a quiet whisper. Well, I'm danged, he said softly, as if he were saying something quite different. Thou does not know how to get at a chap thou does. That's fair and earthly, that's so knowing. And he stood, without stirring, almost without drawing his breath, until the robin gave another flirt to his wings and flew away. Then he stood looking at the handle of the spade 
as if there might be magic in it. And then he began to dig again and said nothing for several minutes. But because he kept breaking into a slow grin now and then, Mary was not afraid to talk to him. Have you a garden of your own? she asked. No, I'm a bachelor and lodge with Martin at the gate. If you had one, said Mary, what would you plant? Cabbages and tatters and onions. But if you wanted to make a flower garden, persisted Mary, what would you plant? Bulbs and sweet smelling things, but mostly roses. Mary's face lightened up. Do you like roses? she said. Then Weatherstaff rooted up a weed and threw it aside before he answered. Well, yes, I do. I was learned that by a young lady I was gardener to. She had a lot in place she was fond of, and she loved them like they was children or robins. I've seen her bend over and kiss em. He dragged out another weed and scowled at it. There were as much as ten year ago. Where is she now? asked Mary, much interested. Heaven, he answered, and drove his spade deep into the soil. According to what Parson says, what happened to the roses? Mary asked again, more interested than ever. They was left to themselves. Mary was becoming quite excited. Do roses quite die when they're left to themselves? she ventured. Well, I got to like em, and I liked her, and she liked em. Ben Weatherstaff admitted reluctantly. Once or twice a year I'd go and work at em, a bit of pruning em and digging about the roots. They run wild, but they was in rich soil, so some of em lived. When they have no leaves, and look grey and brown and dry, how can you tell whether they are dead or alive? inquired Mary. Wait till spring gets at em, wait till the sun shines out in the rain, and the rain falls on the sunshine, and then they'll find out. How, how? cried Mary, forgetting to be careful. Look along em twigs and branches, and if they see a bit of a brown lump swelling here and there, watch it after the warm rain and see what happens. He stopped suddenly and looked curiously at her eager face. Why does thou care so much about roses and such all of a sudden? he demanded. Mistress Mary felt her face grow red. She was almost afraid to answer. I want to play that, that I have a garden of my own, she stammered. I... There is nothing for me to do. I have nothing and no one. Well, said Ben Weatherstaff slowly as he watched her. That's true. There hasn't. He said it in such an odd way that Mary wondered if he was actually a little sorry for her. She had never felt sorry for herself. She had only felt tired and cross because she disliked people and things so much. But now the world seemed to be changing and getting nicer. If no one found out about the secret garden, 
she should enjoy herself, always. She stayed with him for ten or fifteen minutes longer and asked him as many questions as she dared. He answered every one of them in his queer grunting way, and he did not seem really cross and did not pick up his spade and leave her. He said something about roses just as she was going away, and it reminded her of the ones he had said he had been fond of. Do you go and see those other roses now? she asked. Not me in this year. My rheumatics has made me too stiff in the joints. He said it in his grumbling voice, and then quite suddenly he seemed to get angry with her, though she did not see why he should. Now look here, he said sharply. Don't ask too many questions. Thou art the worst wench for asking questions I've ever come across. Get thee gone and play thee. I've done talking for today. And he said it so crossly that she knew that there was not the least use in staying another minute. She went skipping slowly down the outside walk, thinking him over and saying to herself that, queer as it was, here was another person whom she liked in spite of his crossness. She liked old Ben Weatherstaff. Yes, she did like him. There was a laurel-hedged walk which curved around the secret garden and ended at a gate which opened into a wood in the park. She thought she would slip around this walk and look into the wood and see if there were any rabbits hopping about. She enjoyed the skipping very much, and when she reached the little gate she opened it and went through because she heard a low, peculiar whistling sound and wanted to find out what it was. It was a very strange thing indeed. She quite caught her breath as she stopped to look at it. A boy was sitting under a tree with his back against it, playing on a rough wooden pipe. He was a funny-looking boy, about twelve. He looked very clean and his nose turned up and his cheeks were as red as poppies. And never had Mistress Mary seen such round and such blue eyes in any boy's face. And on the trunk of the tree he leaned against, a brown squirrel was clinging and watching him. And from behind a bush nearby a cock pheasant was delicately stretching his neck to peep out. And quite near him were two rabbits, sitting up and sniffing with tremulous noses. And actually it appeared as if they were all drawing near to watch him and listen to the strange low little call his pipe seemed to make. When he saw Mary he held up his hand and spoke to her in a voice almost as low as and rather like his piping. Don't thou move, he said. It'll flight him. Mary remained motionless. He stopped playing his pipe and began to rise from the ground. He moved so slowly that it scarcely seemed as though he were moving at all. But at last he stood on his feet, and then the squirrel scampered back into the branches of his tree. The pheasant withdrew his head, and the rabbits dropped on all fours and began to hop away, though not at all as if they were frightened. 
I'm Dickon, the boy said. I know the art, Miss Mary. Then Mary realised that somehow she had known at first that he was Dickon. Who else could have been charming rabbits and pheasants as the natives charm snakes in India? He had a wide red curving mouth and his smile spread all over his face. I got up slow, he explained, because if thou makes a quick move it startles them. A body as to move gentle and speak low when wild things is about. He did not speak to her as if they had never seen each other before, but as if he knew her quite well. Mary knew nothing about boys, and she spoke to him a little stiffly because she felt rather shy. Did you get Martha's letter? she asked. He nodded his curly, rust-coloured head. That's why I come. He stopped to pick up something which had been lying on the ground beside him when he piped. I've got the garden tools. There's a little spade and a rake and a fork and a hoe. Eh, they're good uns. There's a trowel too, and the woman in the shop threw in a packet of white poppy and one of a blue lark spur when I bought the seeds. Will you show the seeds to me? Mary said. She wished she could talk as he did. His speech was so quick and easy, it sounded to her as if he liked her, and was not the least afraid she would not like him. Though he was only a common moor-boy, in patched clothes, and with a funny face and a rough, rusty red head, as she came closer to him, she noticed that there was a clean, fresh scent of heather and grass and leaves about him, almost as if he were made of them. She liked it very much, and when she looked into his funny face with the red cheeks and round blue eyes, she had forgot that she had felt shy. Let us sit down on this log and look at them, she said. They sat down and he took a clumsy little brown paper package out of his coat pocket. He untied the string, and inside there were ever so many neater and small packages, with a picture of a flower on each one. There's a lot of mignonette and poppies, he said. Mignonette's the sweetest smelling thing as it grows, and it'll grow wherever you cast it, same as poppies will. Them as'll come up and bloom if you just whistle to em. Them's the nicest of all. He stopped and turned his head quickly his poppy-cheeked face lighting up. "'Where's that robin as is calling us?' he said. The chirp came from a thick holly-bush, bright with scarlet berries, and Mary thought she knew who it was. "'Is it really calling us?' she asked. "'Aye,' said Dickon, as if it was the most natural thing in the world. "'He's calling someone he's friends with. "'That same as saying,' Here I am. Look at me. I want a bit of a chat. There he is in the bush. Who is he? He's Ben Weatherstaff's, but I think he knows me a little, answered Mary. Aye, he knows thee, said Dickon, in his low voice again. And he likes thee. He's took thee on. 
He'll tell me all about thee in a minute. He moved quite close to the bush with the slow movement Mary had noticed before, and then he made a sound almost like the robin's own twitter. The robin listened a few seconds intently, and then answered quite as if he were replying to a question. "Aye, he's a friend of yours," chuckled Dickon. "Do you think he is?" cried Mary eagerly. She did so want to know. Do you think he really likes me? He wouldn't come near thee if he didn't," answered Dickon. "Birds is rare choosers, and a robin can flout a body worse than a man. See, he's making up to thee now. Can others see a chap?" he's saying. And it really seemed as if it must be true. He so sidled and twitted and tilted. As he hopped on his bush, do you understand everything birds say? Said Mary. Dickens' grin spread until he seemed all wide, red, curving mouth, and he rubbed his rough hand. I think I do, and they think I do. He said, "I've lived on the moor with 'em so long, I've watched 'em break shell and come out and fledge, and learn to fly and begin to sing, till I think I'm one of 'em." Sometimes I think perhaps I'm a bird or a fox or a rabbit or a squirrel or even a beetle, and I don't know it. He laughed and came back to the log and began to talk about the flower seeds again. He told her what they looked like when they were flowers. He told her how to plant them, and watch them, and feed and water them. See here, he said suddenly, turning round to look at her. I'll plant them for thee myself. Where is thy garden? Mary's thin hands clutched each other as they lay on her lap. She did not know what to say. So for a whole minute she said nothing. She had never thought of this. She felt miserable, and she felt as if she went red and then pale. Thou's got a bit of the garden, hasn't thou? Dickens said. It was true she had turned red and then pale. Dickens saw her do it, and as she still said nothing, he began to be puzzled. Wouldn't they give thee a bit? He asked. Hasn't thou got any yet? She held her hands tighter and turned her eyes towards him. I don't know anything about boys, she said slowly. Could you keep a secret if I told you one? It's a great secret. I don't know what I should do if anyone found out. I believe I should die. She said the last sentence quite fiercely. Dickon looked more puzzled than ever, and even rubbed his hand over his rough head again. But he answered quite good-humouredly. I'm keeping secrets all the time," he said. "If I couldn't keep secrets from the other lads, secrets about foxes, cubs, and birds' nests, and wild things' holes, they'd be not safe on the moor. I, I can keep secrets." Mistress Mary did not mean to put out her hand and clutch his sleeve, but she did it. "I've stolen a garden," she said very fast. 
It isn't mine. It isn't anybody's. Nobody wants it. Nobody cares for it. Nobody ever goes into it. Perhaps everything is dead in it already. I don't know. She began to feel hot and as contrary as she had ever felt in her whole life. I don't care. I don't care. Nobody has any right to take it from me when I care about it and they don't. They're letting it die, all shut in by itself. She ended passionately. And she threw her arms over her face and burst out crying, poor little Mistress Mary. Dickon's curious blue eyes grew rounder and rounder. Eh, he said, drawing his exclamation out slowly. And the way he did it meant both wonder and sympathy. I've nothing to do, said Mary. Nothing belongs to me. I found it myself, and I got into it myself. I was only just like the robin, and they wouldn't take it from the robin. Where is it? asked Dickon in a dropped voice. Mistress Mary got up from the log at once. She knew she felt contrary again, and obstinate, and she did not care at all. She was imperious and Indian, and at the same time hot and sorrowful. Come with me and I'll show you, she said. She led him around the laurel path and to the walk where the ivy grew so thickly. Dickon followed her with a queer, almost pitying look in his face. He felt as if he were being led to look at some strange bird's nest and must move softly. When she stepped to the wall and lifted the hanging ivy, he started. There was a door, and Mary pushed it slowly open, and they passed in together. And then Mary stood and waved her hand round defiantly. It's this, she said. It's a secret garden, and I'm the only one in the world who wants it to be alive. Dickon looked round and round about it, and round and round again. Hey, he almost whispered. It is a queer, pretty place. It's like as if a body was in a dream. And so Mary has revealed to Dickon the importance of the secret garden. Mary is grateful to Dickon for all his help, but will he be able to keep her garden a secret? Let's find out in the next chapter of The Secret Garden.